Ladies and gentlemen, presenting the professor, Greg Dooley, and the pundit, Steve Clark. Men, take the mic. That's right. It's the Professor and the Pundit with Greg Dooley and Steve Clark. We're proudly presented by Nick Hopwood, a certified financial planner, founder, and president of Peak Wealth Management. Retire with confidence. Greg, great to see you. Awesome to see you, man. Last episode, another record for listens. Thank you so much. We always ask you to review, to follow our show, to rate us, to give us feedback. That's how we grow. That's how we get more record episodes. So thanks all of you for doing that. Steve, I noticed we've had over 20,000 plays on Apple. Spotify does the stats differently, but again, just growing followers. So a huge, huge thank you and a reminder to follow us. And speaking of records, Greg, the Michigan football program continuing to set records. They now have 996 wins. That's the most in the NCAA. And they matched a program record 19th consecutive Big Ten win. Only time done back in the 1990 to 1992 era going for the record against Michigan State this week. Unbelievable. But first... We have Michigan's win over Indiana to talk about. A 52-7 win over the Indiana Hoosiers. Another slow-ish start, I guess, is the only thing to say. Were you concerned at all in the beginning there? I mean, I was concerned about overall performance and what it means. I wasn't necessarily concerned they were going to lose the game, but it was two three-and-outs by the Michigan offense to start the game. Meanwhile, Indiana had a three-and-out, but then they drove down the field, and I think part of Indiana's early success was they had a new offensive coordinator with nothing on film for Michigan to go through, plus the bye week. So Indiana had a chance to say, hey, let's air it all out. And I think Michigan kind of changed their tactics after the first couple of drives. But Indiana was rushing the football. They were passing the football on short plays. But then when they got into the red zone of death, which is what Michigan should be calling it because no team has scored on Michigan in the red zone so far this year. Once they entered the red zone of death, Mike Sain was still with the tipped pass, Rob Moore with the interception, and Michigan was off the hook for a little bit until the trick play that Indiana threw in with Donovan McCauley and Jalen Lucas. Perhaps we can shorten it to dead zone as opposed to red zone of death or yeah, death zone sure. or something. Okay. We'll let the marketers decide. That's really interesting. And it looked like Indiana was getting really cute. They basically conceded that they couldn't prevent, say, more than a three-step drop from the quarterback in the beginning, and we're doing those little short plays. And it worked, but time ran out on them. Michigan's offense, on the other hand, they didn't get their first first down until late in the first quarter. And that first down was really tight too. It was a third down play. It just came after JJ was strip sacked and the ball went out of bounds. And then that third down completion was almost picked off, but it got to Colston Loveland. And then after that, it was one first down after another. It seemed like for the next five plays were for first downs. Michigan gets on the board. There was a point again on defense where they had given up a 37-yard completion play, but it was called back because Indiana had a, a penalty call for hands to the face. That ended up turning into a punt, and then Tower Morris's punt return in the closing minutes allowed Michigan to go up 14 at half. 
Yeah, and then just turn the gas on from there. And you mentioned a couple of those passes. They were inches away from a horrible decision or a brilliant play. Like it wasn't going to be or a, a, a brilliant execution. And they got it done, man. What, what can you say? I mean, that we're talking about the beginning of the game because that was really, really what we have to talk about. And that's really where the game was in, in flux. J.J. McCarthy, first two passes were incomplete. And then his remaining 15 pass attempts were completed 14 times. Yeah, and I saw that he had the one where he, he it looked like he overthrew. I think it was uh, Cornelius Johnson by about 40 yards over his head. And that looked like that was, he just slipped right out of his head. That was, that was the one completion in the middle of that stretch um, going into the end zone. But the cause of concern was two things. One, Michigan went into the game only giving up three sacks. They gave up four to the Indiana Hoosiers, who, by the way, were also pressuring Ohio State pretty well in the opener. But the second thing is, J.J. got the ball strip-sacked twice, and he's been strip-sacked before. So I'm wondering if you're a defensive coordinator, said, man, if I can get a hand on J.J. McCarthy, I could probably force a fumble. Yeah, I, I do wonder, like you're talking about now, but what else out of that game? Because Indiana was able to do a few things, and they were able to get some pressure. And by the way, they got a really hard shot on J.J., in the game where you could see that Harbaugh was super frustrated on the sideline that he took that chance. He got drilled. and he, Shouldn't he, have been called. Yeah. That, he, that's a play that should not have been called. He's in the red zone. It's not like there's open field and you can elude a tackler. You're in a tight quarters and you're going to get drilled from behind, which is what he did. We're just in a special situation here because we're kind of grasping to see, hey, what lessons, where, where are the upsides from here? One good thing to think about was that Donovan Edwards did score his first touchdown. Jim Harbaugh described it after the game was it's like opening the pickle jar and trying to get that, you know, that first pickle to come out. And once it comes out, then so will the rest. And I, I think Blake Corum was kind of saying that in the postgame field interviews as well. He says now that he got his first one, I think the rest are going to follow. We'll I think so. I like the pickle jar thing. Did you stay to the end of the game? It looked like IU had what they thought was their second touchdown, and it got overturned because he caught the ball. One foot was out of bounds. Right. Well, this kind of matters to me <laughs> to keep them under 10 points, sure. right, to not exceed that. Uh, you know, I found, uh, you know, if nothing really in the second half mattered beyond J.J. being healthy, it was nice to keep him out of the end zone, even with players number 70 through 90, you know. Right. So it almost seems like, the touchdown was spared due to a technicality. One foot was out of bounds before catching it. I just see that this is a fourth-quarter defense that gives up points. Yeah. Yep. Now, the third-quarter defense is completely different. The third-quarter defense hasn't given up a point. But as the substitutions come in, the chemistry is not there. There are big play mistakes that happen in the fourth quarter to uh, get them on the board. Imagine what Michigan's defense would look like if they only gave up half those points. Yeah. Fourth quarter. Yep. And we didn't talk a ton about the takeaways uh, on our end. That was great. A lot of use of the turnover buffs. I don't know if Coach Harbaugh got in any of the photos this week after photo bombing <laughs> the, in the Minnesota game. Highlights to me, other than those those picks and those turnovers, was the McCarthy to Loveland point and go improvisation that they did. You can talk about McCarthy. I'll talk about how Loveland, how he saw it, and he cut so quickly up the field and then made a pretty nice catch had to turn his body a little bit and of course made the touchdown it was fantastic well it's the recognition factor and it's something that very few quarterbacks in college football can do one you got jj mccarthy who could beat the defensive end or the rush guy who is getting around the sack and he's going to win that foot battle because jj is a, is a running quarterback he's that fast so now you're on the the open part of the field where there's only 
J.J. running, and he's got a whole bunch of green in front of him, and a defensive back who is covering a Michigan receiver, in this case it was Colson Loveland, having to make an instinct, instinctive decision. Do I give up a 25, 30-yard run while I'm still trying to block a guy, and maybe the receiver starts blocking me and I'll never get him? Or do I got to start facing him? And it's one of those things where it's instinctive. It's <laughs> you, you could make a decision, I'm going to go after the quarterback now, but in the exact same situation, instinctively, you decide to choose to keep covering the receiver and see what happens. J.J. McCarthy recognizes this. He knows exactly where the line of scrimmage is and how long he can hang on to the ball. And he draws the defender to him and he just lobs one over the top. It is a video game play. It looks like something anybody could do if you're sitting in front of your TV. I could do that. No, you can't. But you think you can do that. And most college football players don't even try to do that. But there is just great vision going along with J.J. right now to recognize everything around him in an instant of a moment. Uh, hats off to J.J. for his abilities to do that. It's not the first time he has shown that. Um, he has shown that all season long, and he continues to grow as a quarterback. Yep, we have a big one up in East Lansing. They always play us tough. We'll talk about that in a little bit. We're going to have to see some of that. I, State will give us their best game. They will play their best game. They always do. It'll be a tough game, and we'll preview that uh, here soon. So you spent some time during half, as you usually do, to meet and see people, and there's some story updates surrounding the events of the game that are not just the game itself. One of the best, though, interactions was before the game at Joe Simon's Garage at the Key Bank Countdown to kick off. You guys moved it underneath the overhang there to, to stay out of the rain, which is one of the things that giant space that you guys have for the show affords now, which is awesome. And there was a sweet crowd out there with the weather conditions. It was awesome, but... Will Johnson's family, I think his parents were there, and they were selling turnover buffs gear and little makeshift versions, not not the actual, whatever the fancy actual turnover buffs are, super high-end fancy sunglasses. They have little ones you could buy for like 20, 30 bucks before the game, and that was fun to meet them. And they had options where they had players' numbers like bedazzled on the glass, right? And you saw mine, Steve. I bought, I bought number 55. And then, you know, so I have a bedazzled turnover buffs. And then, of course... You couldn't take them off. Uh, oh, they were they were on your head all day. Yeah, so but of course during the game Mason Graham himself gets a turnover and gets to put on the real ones. I thought there was a little bit of synchronicity and harmony there in this for Those me. Pretty valuable sunglasses right now based <laughs> yeah, on are. based on the events. I mean my daughter saw mine when I I took mine home and she immediately said, "Whose glasses are these?" and I said, "They're mine." And she goes, no, they're not. They're mine. So I wore them in Oscars for the post-game show, Steve. You were there. You wore we, them in the movie theater last night. Yes, I, <laughs> I wore them in there. And, of course, keep in mind, you know, uh, loyal podcast listeners, you know what the turnover buffs are. If you saw them on, you would say, oh, he's got turnover buffs. That's great. The regular people inside no. a restaurant bar have no idea. They just think oh. this is a new look for Dooley. I don't know about the bedazzled numbers on there. I don't know what that means, but look at Dooley in his in his new sunglasses. And I got like one of the bar managers goes, my daughter has three pairs of those. She loves them. And I'm like, <laughs> like okay, okay. But I wouldn't, I'm not going to explain this to him, right? No. We already have enough of a no. problem with our fandom, Steve. I'm not going to, I'm not going to like expose myself. <laughs> so I just smiled and wore my buffs. And of course, a few of the people in the bar knew what they were and, and loved them. So that was fun. You mentioned halftime. Yes, I did a little lap. The two of us uh, saw Coach Phil Martelli, who spoke in my leadership class recently and just crushed it. It's such a powerful 
message on leadership, leading yourself, on organization, on thanking people, on gratitude, right, on, on humility. He's awesome. He looks great, by the way. Been under a lot of stress because he's been the acting head basketball coach while Jawan is recovering from his heart situation. Right. So that was cool to see him. We saw Coach Hutch in one of the suites, said hi to Coach Hutch, Coach Bonnie, the dean of the School of Education, Elizabeth Moji, who's pretty fancy herself, was there. I saw John Lynch from the 49ers. They had some scouts there. And John Lynch himself, who's kind of the bell of the ball right now with the 49ers, the way they're yes. rolling, and their team, they are they are amazing. Well, they had a whole crew. Whole team. Yeah, and they and they watched much of the game, and they were on the sideline also before the game, which was pretty sweet. Saw Big John Falk, who I haven't seen in a while. Of course, the legendary equipment manager. Joined Bo's staff in the early 70s, and he's just one of those guys that's been around forever. Big Johnny was there. And we were referencing him just recently about the field conditions in Minnesota for the Minnesota game and, of course, the, the brown jug and everything that he has to do with that. And there's an update on the brown jug as well. Yeah, so many of you have asked, and we'll just say I have a very strong hunch what they're going to do with the brown jug. Now, if you recall, they're out of space for scores on the existing areas they've designated for scores. So about 10 years ago, we painted a new section above the Michigan Block M on the Brown Jug for five more scores. Well, that was used up last time we played. So now we have to determine a new location. And it looks like, Steve, da, 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 suspenseful music here. It looks like it's going to be a new five-score section above the Minnesota M on the other side. Interesting. Yeah. So here's another little detail. The woman who paints the brown jug, many listeners are familiar. Her name is Jill Gordon. That's Jill with one L. She's a local artist who's been painting the score, or in these cases, painting, updating the jug where it needs to be for years. Jill doesn't live in town anymore, but my understanding is she is going to come back, hopefully, and be the one that paints the new section. To that point... We may, Steve, have an event where you can meet Jill on the Friday before the Purdue game. So stay tuned. We're thinking about places. The natural choice would be the Brown Jug on campus, but Friday before the game is a busy time period for them, and I think we'll have quite a few people that are interested. So stay tuned for that, but keep your calendars around happy hour Friday, November 3rd before the Purdue game will keep you posted on what's going on there. So she's now going to paint and put in the numbers. You've seen this happen. How long does it take? It takes about four days to create a new section on the jug because it's there's the initial painting of it and then of the of the white area that's going to be the score. Then she needs to apply a couple more coats to do it right with acrylic paint. Then she does the outline of the scoring area. That has to dry, and then she can do the score. So it's over a several-day process. And it's a little more complicated than one would think. It is. It absolutely is. You just can't bring out a paintbrush. You you could. You could. You want to do it wrong? Are we Michigan, or are we – who are we, Steve? So you could. Someone could just go on there and and hack together something. Let's not do that. Let's do it right. So hopefully all of those things will happen, and we'll keep you posted on that. Yes, I care a lot about this. By the way, Steve, speaking of scores and spaces, I have had a couple people share a little detail with me about the new video boards. Have you okay. heard this? Tell me. Okay. So I heard, and again, this isn't a double-sourced journalistic story. Okay, I want to be clear. 
but I've had two separate people tell me that the reason why so much space is taken up on the left and right on many of the graphics that you see on the Michigan Stadium scoreboards is not by anyone's desire to have it set up that way. Like, there's a lot of real estate taking up when they show a sidebar on the video board, and it looks a little odd. Well, apparently there is an issue with how the scoreboard dimensions were created and unveiled that has to be fixed. So Wait, what? Sorry. You heard me. So this multi-million dollar project, apparently as implemented, is one of the dimensions is short by not a big number, it's like a matter of feet, but it's enough where the the actual output of the video can't be rendered properly the way it's supposed to be. Thus, they've made adjustments in how they're doing the graphics on the screen. I've had two people tell me this kind of quietly, but two different people, Steve, I had to mention it. I had to mention it. I got to stop you for a minute. (laughs) These video boards, which have resembled a cost somewhere between eight and $12 million to replace has an error at the blueprint level. Um, I don't know if it was the blueprint or the implementation of the blueprint. Horrendous. Hey, we'll <laughs> see. My understanding is the end result. It sounds basic, Greg. Okay. If what there's something it? wrong with size and width and depth, it sounds botched at the basic level. For a big-time company that's charging $12 million, has fundamental flaws to it. It's it's either in the... Yes, it's probably in the design because it's, this isn't like a Lego you know, set where you, where you didn't just add the last row, <laughs> you know, of the straight bricks. Do you want me... I, I, no, I can't explain, but I do know a little bit at resolution and how video works, that it does need to fit a certain template to be used properly. And, it, <laughs> and the other option would be, as I understand it, is you could, you could actually make the real estate smaller of what you use, but it would look ridiculous, right? You, you shrink down. <laughs> but it does look like it was a problem not by the athletic department, by the vendor that needs to be addressed and fixed. Again, the details, who did what, and this is not double source, but... I've, having two people mention this to me, Steve, I, I had to say something. This is not a worker who didn't plug in the right computer card into the right spot. No. A lot of people saw the scoreboards before the season started because they were playing a lot of things on them. I wonder if they were trying to reconcile how to deal with this. This is this is pure speculation. Yeah. If they were one, they were they were experimenting with different graphics and different templates to use for this. So, if true, it would be quite a blunder. No. Is this going to affect the outcome of the games? No, no. but it I, would be I'm just, quite stunning. I'm just thinking of a company that charged between 8 and $12 million, how they're going to drum up any more business. Well, maybe if people like me stop talking about it, they'll be fine, but, but we'll see. My well, gosh, hey, listen, man. You, they're so huge, you can't hide, so we'll find out. Like, if they have to fix this, we'll find out after the season. They'll be up there doing their thing, and... It's not going to be hidden. It's 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 in plain sight. You can see them from space. Okay, <laughs> that's how big they are. Despite that, I still like the scoreboards. I still yeah, like the way sweet. they look. There's two of them. Most schools can't even produce one the size of what Michigan's got. It looks great, but yes, from a fundamental level, to have that kind of a mistake, I shake my head. And speaking of the top dog, did you hear that Ward Manual? 
interrupted the press conference briefly with Jim Harbaugh. Did you catch this? So a little strange. Harbaugh was going through praise for all his coaches, and Ward Manuel jumped in and said, hey, hey, coach, Jim, you forgot somebody. You did a great job, too, out there. And Jim kind of went, thanks, Ward. <laughs> you know, it was a little <laughs> awkward. But I wonder, Jim was asked recently in a press conference, where do you want to be coaching football? And he said, where I'm appreciated. Where I'm like. You know, where, where people want me to be there. And Was that the Ward manual verbal like button? I do feel liked, loved, wanted here. You know, where I'm wanted. And I think that was the verbal like button, Steve. Very good. Nice. Do we have a sound effect for that? <laughs> the verbal like button. Or, or maybe a love. That might have been a love. Love button? But. Not a ha-ha. <laughs> not a tee not a ha-ha. <laughs> not a um, gritted teeth. Although it was a little weird. It was a little awkward. But Ward, I think it was a strategic thing to publicly acknowledge gratitude for Coach Harbaugh obviously in a press conference, which its whole point sure. is to be public. So sure. very interesting. And let's, just, let's get this contract done. This would be in the step in the right direction if you want to see Jim Harbaugh as the head coach. Yeah, know. unless the fact that I just shared this thing I've heard about the scoreboards and mentioning Ward in the press conference, he is scheduled, Ward Manuel, to speak to my History College Athletics students later uh, in November. And I'm really excited about that kind of a Q&A format where mm-hmm. I want him to talk about the role of athletic departments in major colleges and where we're going. We actually had to schedule it around the college football playoff committee meetings, which of Ward is one of the guys on the committee. It's halftime here on The Professor and the Pundit with Greg Dooling and Steve Clark. And now joining us in studio to talk a little bit about football and investing is Nick Hopwood, who's a certified financial planner for Peak Wealth Management. Retire with confidence. Nick, you've got your own podcast going and you're doing something a little bit different. You've got a YouTube channel as well. Yeah, it's the Trust the Plan podcast with Nick Hopwood and Jim Pilot. And oftentimes it's just us talking, but oftentimes we have guests on as well. And you're right, we do simulcast on the YouTube channel. It's youtube.com slash peakwealthmgmt. And we're, we're getting a good following, so check us out. And I noticed you've put some like social media hits out there with little clips, like little piece of advice, and they're really good. How have those been received? Thanks. Yeah, those are the reels, the 30-second clips. We had one that went viral talking about tipping. Yes. And it had like a million views. It was awesome. It's crazy how our tipping culture, like at coffee shops and stuff, has, has gone out of control. Like the guilt of going up to that machine and saying, okay, no, I don't want to give you a $5 tip for my $3 coffee. Yeah, I, I'm totally fine with the 20% tip, even if it's bad service, honestly. I've, in a I've, restaurant. I've worked in the service industry. <laughs> Same. It's hard, man. Like I was a busboy at Chi Chi's, you know, it, it was hard work. But the hard thing is when you're doing carry out and they flip over the iPad and then they want you to tip. That's where it's frustrating for me. Okay, well... I do think tipping the carry out something is appropriate. It's not 20%. Though. Yeah, okay. I, I do a dollar per dish, per entree, you know. I got a new one for you. I was asked to tip on my oil change. Mm, that's, that's that's brutal. Tip on your oil change? Yes, me that's if I wanted to leave material. a tip. <laughs> Time that for a Tesla. Wild. <laughs> Time so for a Tesla. It wasn't a car wash where the guy was, was drying. This was an oil change. Yes. And they asked you for a tip. Okay. Okay, I just threw up. (laughs) All right. All right, Greg, let's take a quick look at what happened at the Big Ten over the weekend. There were upsets galore. Iowa again. I mean, I thought they had no shot to win at Wisconsin, but this is what Iowa does, do they not? I mean, 
Each week, Greg, I can cite a few Iowa offensive stats that fully describe their complete ineptitude. And then I will ask, did they win anyway or did they lose by 30? And if you didn't know it was the Hawkeyes, everybody would say the latter. They would lose by 30. This week, Greg, Iowa had six consecutive drives for a total of three yards. And their top two playmakers were out of the game. That's like not having J.J., no Blake, and no Roman. The answer? They win 15-6 to six over the Badgers. Unbelievable. I, I, and, and, you know, I, we mentioned the Michigan State game. They, I mean, that game was razor close, okay, at the State game. They pull it out. They get it done. And if you had to ask, if you had to pull pundits. F*** pundits. Right now, they would say, I was got the inside track to go to the Big Ten Championship. It's it, really unbelievable. Iowa quarterback Deacon Hill came from Wisconsin. His only pass play as a Badger was a 10-yard sack when his team was leading by 59. Deacon Hill led Iowa to victory with 37 yards passing. The Hawkeyes had a long touchdown run, proving all you need is one play to work right for them, two field goals, and of course, Iowa got a safety. Meanwhile, why did Wisconsin's offense go completely down the toilet, the air raid? Wisconsin quarterback Tanner Mordecai went out with an injury in the second quarter, and stunningly, Wisconsin's backup quarterback is worse than Iowa's. <laughs> I also saw that Eric All went out, of course, the right. former Michigan tight end, with what looked like a bad injury, which sucks. I mean, I feel so bad for him. So they're down another person, and but still pulled it out. They're two best playmakers. Yeah. Luke Lachey and Eric All are not playing. You have the backup quarterback. And what's going to carry them at this point is Iowa's offensive line is learning to create and make holes for a running back. This week, Greg, it was LeSean Williams who ran for nearly 200 yards and a long touchdown run. And it was another Iowa back the previous week. So you could say that Iowa's offensive line, when push comes to shove, pun intended, is starting to create a hole for multiple running back. The thing is, Wisconsin and Iowa look like they're the two best teams in the West, and that's where they are in the standings. But both of them are now down to inept backup quarterbacks running their team. If you asked me at the beginning of the season, I thought there would be this serendipity where we would play Cade McNamara and Eric All in the Big Ten Championship, right? And would it be all this drama? Well, Iowa may be there wildly without those two guys and many others. So crazy. It's remarkable. I, I I do wonder, you know, what their fan base feel. I mean, they you can look at all the data, but they're they're winning games. They must be very happy with the fact that they're pulling these games out. I don't know. They're happy in the moment, but I think they're also going, man. If we just had a credible offense, we could challenge Michigan, That's true. Ohio what State, could be? or Penn State. Yeah, that wasn't the biggest upset of the weekend, though. Greg Maryland was nearly a two-touchdown favorite over visiting Illinois, an Illinois team who, in their last two games, got trounced by Purdue and then took a home loss to Nebraska. Okay, the week after Michigan trounced them, they went on the road to beat Maryland on a walk-off field goal. Greg, it's been 24 hours, and I still can't figure out how Illinois came away with the upset. But we're less concerned about that trip to Maryland right now. You got more concerned about it last week after challenging Ohio (laughs) State, less concerned after losing at home to the fighting Illini. Very, very strange. Wild. But we've got a ground-shaking game that's going to have a huge impact on no matter what happens next week with Penn State and Ohio State. 
Yeah, Greg, so I think the big thing in this matchup right now is the injury report for the Buckeyes. The top three running backs for Ohio State are on the injury report. Trayvon Henderson, Mayan Williams, and Tranum. They did not play at Purdue last week, and Emeka Abuka was out of the game as well. Now, they had no problem winning at Purdue, but those are four guys that you need to have healthy against a Penn State defense that is all of that. And I think there's some people that think that Penn State has the best defense in the nation. Ohio State and Michigan, of course, will will stake their claim that they have the best defense in the Big Ten and in the nation as well. This game is in Columbus. Most people going in feel that Ohio State is leading into it, but they didn't expect to be see Ohio State so vulnerable, and they didn't expect to see Penn State's defense to be so good. Yeah, I mean, it feels like a toss-up is what it feels like to me. On a neutral field, it feels like the way it's been going for Penn State, they'd have an advantage, but I don't know. Well, what we're going to find out is we're going to start to find out the narratives for when Michigan plays Penn State first on November 11th and, of course, Ohio State at the end of the year. If Penn State beats Ohio State, then the Michigan game in Happy Valley, it is a Big Ten Eastern Division Championship opportunity for Penn State because they would have the chance to beat both Ohio State and Michigan virtually winning all tiebreakers even if Penn State were to lose a game yep. down the line which they're not going to yeah you're you're pretty much in and and frankly you said East Division you're probably the Big Ten champ so what else around the nation, Steve? The Irish had a big one against USC, and I was kind of shocked by the result. I've been shocked by the results of the last few weeks by Notre Dame. Notre Dame scoring 48 on USC. Man, the Pac-12 reputation is alive and well. All offense, no defense. And the only undefeated team left in the Pac-12 now is the Washington Huskies, who are a big winner over Oregon in an exciting game, 36-33. to No field goal mentality, Greg. Oregon 0-3 on fourth down. Twice they did that inside the 10-yard line of Washington. And if you go back, because I saw this on an ESPN graphic, they were 0-5 on fourth down in their previous loss. So these are games decided, you know, in the last minute. You know, the big goals. Ten, yeah, you know, <laughs> and, and the Big Ten is basically being mocked for its conservative play calling and decision-making, valuing the football and the score. The Pac-12 praised for its just-go-for-it mentality and throwing caution to the wind. And Dan Landing took the loss and said, it's 100% on me. That game could have had a much different outcome if they took the points instead of going for it. Fourth and goal from the eight. Fourth and goal from the three. Maybe take the points there in those situations. And one that I don't blame them for going for it on fourth down, Oregon's at midfield. If they get the first down, they can ice the game. All right, and it seems like the way when there's no defense being played in the Pac-12, it doesn't matter whether you give up the ball at the 50-yard line, which is what Oregon did, or whether you pooch-punted an extra 30 yards inside the 20. These Pac-12 offenses that are good will march down the field anyway. I mean, what's an extra 30 yards worth? 15 to 20 seconds of the time clock, probably. Yeah, and I don't doubt they have good offenses, but they also have horrible defenses, and I feel like... Notre Dame is more representative of what a Big Ten team is going to do to these teams when they get in here. And you can't help but feel that these guys are in for a wake-up call when they join the Big Ten. Well, And it's a big lift, I think, for Midwestern reputation, Big Ten reputation. The only ranked team that a Big Ten team won in in non-conference play was Ohio State over Notre Dame. And if Notre Dame has three losses, then what's the worth of the Big Ten's only ranked win? 
right in That's the moment. True. It's not very much. But now when you see that Ohio State held Notre Dame to those few points and Notre Dame scored 48 on USC, there's a question now that goes, well, how really good is the Pac-12 as a football team, offense and defense? We know they're explosive offensively. But what are they defensively? And USC showed them for what they are. Yet again, their reputation is solid. So that might help the Big Ten in in a little bit of credibility in terms of getting a playoff spot. Yeah, and it might help if USC now down wounded with this dangerous quarterback, which no one denies the guy's incredible, Caleb Williams. Do they now go around and wreck other teams' seasons in the, in the Pac-12 and possibly eliminate those teams, right? So we'll see how that shakes out. Losing by four touchdowns is usually the kiss of death to your national championship hopes and a playoff berth. But in this case, Greg, the Trojans are playing four ranked teams upcoming on their schedule and probably a rematch with a ranked team in the Pac-12 championship game. It starts this Saturday with number 14 Utah at home. They play Oregon, who are still a top 10 team at Alton. Then there's UCLA, and they have number five, Washington, the conference's only undefeated team at the Coliseum. To be in this conversation, they'll have beaten three top 10 teams. Their credibility gets restored, I think, and they'll be red hot at the end of the year. And that might trump a 28-point loss in South Bend that will feel like it's in the rearview mirror. Wow. Yeah, we'll keep an eye on the Pac-12 for sure. I do think they clearly have an opportunity. I think we'll see this in the Big Ten next year. When Michigan has this crazy slate of games where a loss or two, we can still work our way into that 12-team playoff, but we're not there yet, right? But, Steve, a rivalry game, a big one. I throw out the records. I do think we have a huge advantage, but let's talk about Michigan State this week. It's a big one. I, I always tell people it doesn't matter. State always plays us tough, especially in East Lansing. Many former players argue dirty, Steve. Yes. That they'll they'll twist you, they'll yes. go after the whistle. And by the way, fans hate that. The players don't mind, but what they want, what I've always heard from the players is call it fair. If we're going to go after the whistle, then let us go after the whistle too and call it. We don't mind it. If that's how it's going to be, that's what I've heard from people like John Jansen and other players who played in the 60s. It's, it is a tough game. They will play us tough. But State's kind of in a tailspin right now. Michigan getting a fair shake in Spartan Stadium is kind of tough to come by. Yeah, Greg, Michigan State is spiraling downhill. Look at last week's game against Rutgers. They were up 24-6. to Most of the 55,000 people that were announced to be there in Piscataway had left. Rutgers outscored the Spartans 21 to nothing in the fourth quarter. Michigan State had negative 20 yards in the fourth quarter. The bulk of that negative yards triggered the comeback as Michael Shaughnessy drops a punt snap. It's recovered in the end zone, ironically, by a former Michigan State verbal commit, touchdown Rutgers. Next drive, Michigan State goes three and out. Rutgers scores again on a long drive. And then for some reason, Greg, you pointed this out, eight and a half minutes left in the ball game. Michigan State, up by three, is expecting an onside kick. Rutgers never showed onside kick left plenty of room for Rutgers to do a pooch kickoff into a cavernous empty space. The Michigan State player refuses to catch it on the grab. He'd have to race up to it to get it, but he let it bounce, and the ball bounced high, and that allowed for a simultaneous collision in which Rutgers recovers 
for the possession. Also could have called a fair catch in the kickoff, which you can do. I didn't didn't do that. And but the guy was put in a tough situation because State was in the onside kick. I don't know what the card says or the, as they say on TV, but the down three with eight and a half minutes to go with all of your timeouts, you're not kicking an onside kick, Steve. So State shouldn't have been in that. Maybe say, hey, maybe have a couple hand guys there in case they try something funny because there were a lot of weird things that were happening there in the fourth quarter. But to basically set up to defend an onside kick was a bad call. So and put the guy in a bad position. Right. After recovering the fumble, it takes one play for Kyle Manungai, 21 yards, and the Scarlet Knights are up three. MSU, who is shell-shocked at this point, goes three and out. And Rutgers gets the ball with 7.05 left and a three-point lead. And here's the sequence, Greg. Manungai. 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 Nine straight Kyle Manungai runs before Gavin Wimsett goes to a knee. Manungai rushes for over 100 yards in the fourth quarter alone. Greg, imagine in a game, in a big game, where Michigan makes a comeback and Blake Corum runs the ball nine straight times to ice the clock. No, I, I the, what I can remember is, of course, Chris Perry, 51 carries against Michigan State. It was kind of like that. We're just going to do this. Harbaugh's done this, too, to other teams where we just run the ball and just, just have the, the game clock. I got to give credit, though, to Rutgers at the end of the game. We gave so much crap to Miami for their game mm-hmm. by not going in victory formation. Well, no one talks about it when you do it perfectly. And I'm not talking about knowing when to get into victory formation. But, Steve, did you see what they did? They knew they had four snaps in victory formation, but they knew they needed a few more seconds. They did the math, and what they did was they snapped it to the quarterback in a shotgun, and he danced around to kill the clock a few times in victory formation, giving them just enough time to have that final snap where he could down it and the game was over. They executed it perfectly. No one's going to talk about it because it wasn't a complete disaster. It's not going to no. be on Sports well, Center. It wasn't sexy. Yeah, it wasn't sexy. And I'm not saying it's rocket science either, but you know, the recognition that the, the coaches knew exactly that they, they couldn't just go down. They had to dance around a little bit to kill a few more seconds, and they did it. So hats off to Rutgers, man. So there was two Michigan State special team gaffes in the Rutgers game. They gave up a 70-yard punt return to Cooper DeGene in the previous game at Iowa. Without these special team woes, Michigan State was in control of their last two games at Iowa in Kinnick Stadium. They were. On the road at Rutgers. Boy, what could they do at home? If you could get rid of the special team gaffes that go along, you've benched your starting quarterback, Noel Kim, for Kate Hauser, who had two passing touchdowns, had a rushing touchdown, Michigan State's offense showing a pulse. I mean, maybe Michigan State can be competitive in this. Maybe. And, you know, teams have shown they can hang with Michigan for a quarter. We just saw that. Can State string together a couple quarters? The problem is four quarters beating Michigan team and figuring out how to contain our offense, figuring out how to get enough through our defense with the pressure. We'll see, man. And they, they've just been so opportunistic. I think Michigan wins. But I would say closer. I don't know if the line's been put out yet. But Michigan I, opened up as a 25-point favorite. I, I just feel like State, this is their opportunity. The game's at night. I am a little concerned because this is such a tough-slash-dirty game that we make it out healthy, that we make it out without incident because this is a wounded animal right now, a wounded Sparty. Yeah, and- I don't know. I think Michigan State could uh, could put some points on the board. Nate Carter's a solid running back. 
Kaden Hauser might be able to light a spark for them offensively, but I'm more worried about the injury report. Okay, me too. Um, and NIL had an impact on this game. Keon Coleman would be there, is my understanding, if the price was right. And he was supported the way he wanted to be supported at Michigan State. I don't know about Peyton Thorne. I can't say that about him. But Keon Coleman, one of the best players in college football, would be playing for Michigan State right now, and he'd be a problem, especially with uh, their, their new quarterback, Hauser, seemingly being able to deliver the ball down the field a little better than Noah Kim. If they do play better, they can beat a Minnesota. They could beat a Nebraska. They could beat an Indiana. But the team facing the most adversity in the state of Michigan right now, Greg, is the deer population north of East Lansing. <laughs> okay. Because after this game in Spartan Stadium at night, there's going to be thousands of Spartans fans who will be choosing deer stands for stadium stands in November. Right on. And I happen to know, like, um, both seasons already open, Steve. So if any Spartans want to head up north now, I, there's a lot of deer out there. I do know that tickets to this game were very reasonable for Michigan fans for a long period to snap up. And there will be a lot of maize and blue in Spartan Stadium on Saturday. Sounds great. All right, man. I got to talk about the Paul Bunyan trophy quickly. Yes. This is not my favorite trophy. Michigan never wanted this trophy. This was a political stunt by the governor of Michigan in the early 1950s, a guy named Gerhard Soapy Menon. Steve, do you Wait know why he's called Soapy? I just wanted to ask you that. Why is the nickname Soapy? Are you familiar with the company Menon and their famous jingle and their song by Menon? Yes. Deodorants, other okay. types of products. Okay. His family is the founder of Menon toiletry products, deodorant, speed stick, of course, the iconic, you know, brand in our, our lifetime growing up. So his still his, seems his, like a derogatory his nickname, nickname to me. His nickname is Soapy because of the products that his I think it's his grandfather's company created. So that's why he's Soapy Menon, the governor of Michigan. Uh hilarious. Michigan didn't want it. Also, they named it the Paul Bunyan Trophy, Steve. Do you associate Paul Bunyan specifically with the state of Michigan in any form? Specifically with the state of yeah. Michigan? Yeah, I mean, there's there, but there's also Minnesota claims Paul Bunyan, Wisconsin claims. Parts of Canada claim Paul Bunyan. This is a regional kind of fictional character, okay? Also, Paul Bunyan's axe already had existed, so we already had a trophy in the conference named after Paul Bunyan, Right. That shows so, the creativity, doesn't the, it? So, as I speculated, did we suggest the Floyd of Ferndale as one of the <laughs> options, Steve? Was that one of the, the, the cutting room floor options for this trophy? Floyd so, of Ferndale. uncreative. Michigan no. never wanted it because Michigan never really wanted to put Michigan State on the same level as us because they had just joined the Big Ten. So, you can get why the arrogance and... The stuffiness of Michigan came out. It absolutely did. I love this. So, Steve, can I read this to you? Absolutely. This, this is a letter to the Michigan Daily from November 7th, 1953. And this is just when the, the, the trophy kind of came into existence. And this is what a student, I believe, at the time wrote. He said, considering the complete lack of student enthusiasm on campus for the whole trophy idea, it seems rather pointless to artificially create an incentive for a game already marked by strong feelings on both sides. For lack of anything better to do with it, why doesn't the governor give the trophy to his kids for Christmas? 
That was like the instant react <laughs> in the just please. And it's supposed to be a locker room trophy. The part that you see, the Paul Bunyan, that state started to parade around our field and their field when they won it during the D'Antonio era, is just the top. This thing is huge. It's many, many, many feet high, very heavy. It's meant to stay in the locker room, but that all changed when Michigan State just decided to parade it around, and I don't blame them for that. Um, it was a big deal. But that's why we don't like the Paul Bunyan Trophy, Steve. Over, and I believe it should stay in the locker room. Over, under, touchdowns where the touchdown scorer mimics Paul Bunyan. Over, would, under, two. I would go over. Two is probably a good number. I was think, As you were speaking, Steve, I was thinking one and a half to two and a half, somewhere in there. <laughs> okay. I'd probably go over. Because you could see State, if they get an early score doing it, and then Michigan for the rest of the game, if things have gone like they have lately, just doing a never-ending string of Paul Bunyans with the head, which has become part of it, is the head to the side. I'm not exactly sure why, because I believe the trophy, the, the, the guy's head is straight up. But it, it's, it's turned to the arms at the side with the head at the side. But If we have a new turnover buff photo where everybody's head is cocked to the side there you go just like if you look at how desmond howard kind of did the heisman pose Mm -hmm. it if you match that up to the trophy everyone knew what he was trying to do but that's not exactly how the trophy looks right (laughs) it's actually a lot different from that but no one cares so it's fun stuff well greg we spend most of this football season being very upbeat about everything that's going around michigan football we hope to do the same thing next week after michigan beats michigan state the big games are coming up starting on November 11th with Penn State after that. Boy, are we cocky dismissing Michigan State right away. But until then, remember Michigan football, back-to-back Big Ten champs and winners over Ohio State and Michigan State. Go Blue, Greg. Go Blue. Go Blue.